Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Over a decade ago, the Department of Veterans Affairs launched an ambitious project to build the world's largest collection of health and genetic data. The idea being it would be an invaluable tool for disease research. It's called the Million Veterans Program, or MVP, and as of this month, it's lived up to its name. There are now a million veterans enrolled and in the data set. To talk more about what it means and some of what VA has been doing with the data, we're joined now by Dr. Sumitra Muralidar, the program director for MVP. And Dr. Muralidar, thanks for being with us. Talk to us a bit about the origin of the Million Veteran Program. And, you know, is this about the cadence that you were expecting in terms of how long it would take to finally reach a million? Well, that's a great question. So first of all, traditionally, how genetic studies were done were in silos, like there would be an investigator who's interested in looking at the genetics of diabetes or heart disease. And they would, you know, enroll maybe a couple of thousand patients and uh, controls and do their analyses. So it was kind of a siloed approach and in small numbers. So our vision was really kind of bold and game-changing. We wanted to really enroll at least 1 million veterans into this program, collect their genetic information and their lifestyle and uh, military experiences and exposure information. And when we have one of the best electronic health records in the VA, so we could get access to the health record and establish this mega database where researchers can now not just query one disease condition. They could look at any disease that is represented with a million people. We're going to you know, be seeing all sorts of health conditions represented that we see among veterans. So that was the first thing. The second was the scale. Instead of looking at a few thousand, now they can look at tens of thousands of people with a particular condition or even hundreds of thousands of people uh, in, in a specific condition. And the third thing was diversity. You know, traditionally, most genetic studies done in people of European descent. In here, we wanted to leverage the diversity in the veteran population. Now, you know, we recently enrolled our millionth enrollee, as you know, we're past the million. And we have over 180,000 veterans of African descent represented in the program. And over 80,000 veterans that are Hispanic over 100,000 women represented. So now we're going, we're able to ask, you know, uh, or make discoveries, not only across different ancestries, but even discoveries of genetic markers specific to our population. So that was the goal when we first started out to say, let's change the paradigm here from individual researchers asking questions in small numbers of a particular condition and really create this large resource that can be tapped into. And our ultimate goal really was to be able to use this information to advance personalized or precision healthcare, meaning we personalize treatments or personalized screenings based on the genetics, the lifestyle, and the medical history of an individual veteran. That's our ultimate goal. Yeah, and so it sounds like the, the objective has always been to enable generally applicable medical research and not solely research that, that applies to veterans, although I'm sure you get that too. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so a lot of the conditions we see in our veterans are also seen in the general population, you know, chronic conditions like heart disease, mental health issues, 
kidney disease, cancers. There, so anything we learn from this program in veterans is going to be applicable to the population at large. And, and although you only recently reached the 1 million mark, the data set has been around and in progress for quite a while now. So, so what have researchers been able to glean from this large data set so far? Can you tell us about some of the research that's been conducted and any treatments that have come from that? Well, absolutely. So we didn't wait till we reached a million to start doing the science. So we started curating the data and making it available. Um, So we have over 100 projects and over 350 scientific publications that have come out from this uh, data set in in all conditions, you know, mental health, PTSD, depression, anxiety, TBI, um, heart disease, various cancers. So the entire spectrum of any condition you can think of and some that are specific, like tinnitus that we see among veterans, you know, that's, uh, or TBI, that's more common in veterans. Uh, we've been able to do studies in these. And as I mentioned earlier, some of the largest studies, we've done a genetic association study in 165,000 veterans with PTSD. Anxiety, one of the largest ever done in 200,000 veterans. Uh, depression in 300,000 veterans. So this has never been done before. And what we found is not only confirmed previous findings, we have identified new genetic markers across ancestries, and also we've identified genetic markers that are specific to to African-Americans and Hispanics in terms of um, uh, depression, um, even PTSD. So there are certain conditions where we've identified specific um, genetic markers. Now, in terms of your question about treatments, we are just now moving into that phase of trying to see what discoveries are uh, apt or you know appropriate for now moving into the clinic and how to, what that does that pathway look like. Um, and I can give you a couple of examples. Sure, so, please. Um, you know, prostate cancer uh, common in in men um, and speci- uh, specifically of African American descent. And uh, the lethal form of cancer, prostate cancer, is not seen in everybody. Everyone doesn't progress to the lethal form of metastatic prostate cancer. But there's no way of telling who will progress to that. So generally, the treatment is prostatectomy because we don't currently have a way of predicting that. So one of our studies on uh, metastatic prostate cancer identified a number of genes together that can predict risk for the more dangerous form, the metastatic prostate cancer, and that's called a polygenic risk score. So they've developed a polygenic risk score. And now in a VA-funded clinical trial, we are testing it to say if we did, you know, standard of screening for prostate cancer, comparing that with standard of care screening plus adding this polygenic risk score, will we be able to identify who progresses to the more dangerous form earlier so we can you know really focus and and uh, target the aggressive treatments to those people who are at a higher risk that's one example um and i'll give you another one and sure. that's in um end stage renal disease um again uh, people of african descent as well as hispanics are more prone to end stage renal disease And our researchers studying this uh, found a specific genetic marker in this case that is beneficial. So not all genetic markers are, you know, bad and increase the risk. 
But in this case, they found the protective genetic marker. And, and then going into the mechanism of how that marker is protecting people from getting the, you know, progressing to end stage renal disease, they found that there could be, it's it sort of, you could have medications, drugs that can mimic this effect. So now it's not, not within the VA, but there is a, a pharma that has um, now testing a drug that mimics the effect of this protective genetic marker to see if that can benefit people with um, chronic kidney disease and prevent them from progressing to the end stage uh, renal disease. Yeah. So these are a couple of examples of... Uh, yeah. And that pharma point you just made actually gets to the next question I was going to ask, which is, you know, when you talked about all the research that's been ongoing, you use the word we a lot. Is, is this data set also available to researchers who are not directly or formally affiliated with VA? And, you know, if so, how do you control the data? How do you protect privacy? That sort of thing. So right now, the data are available to VA researchers, uh, but a lot of nearly all of our studies uh, have academic researchers on the project, you know, because most of our VA researchers also have appointments at an affiliated university. So our research teams include collaborators. They may not directly touch the data because uh, you have to have a VA appointment and uh, a VA account to be able to access the data within the VA system. But we are looking, uh, we're actually beta testing a VA data commons outside the VA firewall right now. Um, and that is where we, in the future, hope to provide access to de-identified um, MVP data to the broader research community. Um, in addition, we recently conducted one of the largest um, genome-wide, phenome-wide study. And that means like, you know, generally people take a single genetic marker and see what health conditions it's associated with, or they take a single disease uh, like diabetes and say what how many genetic markers are associated with diabetes. Here we looked at um, almost 45 million genetic markers and two a little over 2,000 health conditions. And this is using the supercomputers that at the Department of Energy um, where we were able to do those associations. And the summary results will be available to the broad research community and they can then build future hypotheses based on those. That's so it's another way, you know, the summary data from all our analyses are available to the broader community. Now you brought you asked the question about how do we secure and you know protect privacy and confidentiality. So that is one of our highest priorities. And so end-to-end, -end, from the point of collection to the point of use of the data, we have a number of mechanisms in place to protect the data. First of all, it's it's coded. We don't use direct identifiers such as name or date of birth or social security numbers on, on the blood tube, let's say, where we collect the blood specimen. It's coded, it has a barcode. Similarly, on the, the surveys that veterans um, complete. So we do have an honest broker system um, that can link it back to the veteran. And we have very few people who have access to that, you know, authorized individuals. But throughout the journey, the life cycle of this data from collection to use, it's coded. That's one thing. And then the second thing is we bring researchers to the data in a central, secure scientific computing environment, meaning we're not distributing data sets out. We have a central environment. We provide all the analytic tools that researchers need. And 
researchers were approved for access, access the data in the system, do the research, the analysis, and they can only take out the results that they need for their publications and other things. So that's another mechanism by which we um, pr protect the privacy and confidentiality. So data never leaves our central system. And last thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, now that I've now, now that you've reached a million, I'm, I'm assuming you're not going to stop and that you're going to want to continue to impanel veterans uh, in, into this program so that you continue to to get uh, a contemporary read on things. How, how, how do you think about that whole process going forward and how do veterans who are interested enroll? Yeah, so so definitely we're not going to stop. We're going to continue. What we will do is focus on increasing the underrepresented populations. You know, so I, I mentioned over 180,000 African-Americans and 80,000 Hispanics, women 100,000, but we can do much better than that. And, you know, the goal is to now go focus our recruitment efforts on, on those populations and others like, you know, Native Americans, you know, Pacific Islanders, Asian Americans, those are much, un, much more underrepresented. Um, we want to increase all those and even medical conditions. What are the conditions that, where are the gaps in this large data set? What are we not seeing? And focus and enroll veterans on that. And so it's open and uh, there are two ways. We have about 70 sites around the country right now that where veterans can enroll in person and they can also enroll online. We have an online portal and the address for that is mvp.va.gov. So if they go to the portal, they can enroll online, complete the consent process, complete surveys online. They can schedule their own appointments at the VA to uh, give a blood specimen, or they can opt for getting a, a kit mailed home where they can do a, a blood draw, a small, you know, it's a small amount of blood. It's a kit um, that they can um, do that and send it back to the VA. So and if they go to the website, there's also a number there for our information center. If, if they have additional questions, they can ask uh, about the program and even have appointments made by our call center staff as well. I just wanted to call out the, uh, the, the altruism and the spirit of service of our veterans, you know, and that is why we are here today. Without that, we would not have been able to get to where we are or take this forward even. Um, and um, it, this is really, you know, a legacy that they're leaving behind and it's a gift to the world because this database is we expect it's going to be there forever and generate new information and bring it back to improve healthcare for all people. Dr. Sumitra Muralidar is the program director for the Million Veterans Program at the Department of Veterans Affairs. You can hear this interview anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? 
Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that, I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
and I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank uh, you. having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.